Welcome to the Faith Element Podcast for the September 25, 2022 session, focusing on Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. So close, yet so far. I'm David Cassidy. I'm Nikki Hardiman. I'm Bert Montgomery. And I'm Daniel Glaze. Well, I think I mentioned uh, a couple episodes ago about uh, Fred, uh, Frederick Breekner passing away recently. And, you know, if you've listened to the podcast at all, you know I like to quote him. Part of that's because he was so prolific in his writing. And recently, and I can't remember where, or I would give attribution, but I, I read that someone had asked him, you know, of all the things that you wrote, what would you say was the most important thing or what would you sum it up as the, you know, the central thesis of your, of your writing? And he said, listen to your life, which is a connection to um, something he wrote in a book called Now and Then, A Memoir of Vocation. And the statement he wrote was, listen to your life, see it for the fathomless mystery it is, in the boredom and pain of it, no less than in the excitement and gladness. Touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it, because in the last analysis all moments are key moments, and life itself is grace. So my question to you, my fellow podcasters, is what bit of grace did you taste, see, touch, or smell today? Okay, I'll go first. <laughs> um, so I was um, I was in Louisville today, and the um, one of the very first Cosby Scholarship graduates. This is an African American scholarship that we offer at the school. Was there, and she had just received her certification as a chaplain, and she was so excited. She came running across the room, grabbed me, <laughs> hugged me, and picked me up. Now, she is a vivacious, exciting individual anyway, but I have to say that her celebrating with me about this accomplishment in her life and on her ministry path, it brought me incredible joy. And I was really appreciative that she shared that moment of grace with me. So that's mine. I'll share. It, it, it's. I don't think it's anything as... as deeply connecting with this, what you've said, but you know, it's a little thing. And it was, it meant a lot to me today. Uh, an old friend, one of my mentors, who's now a retired pastor, um, and I were chatting on, on the internet and, um, we we both have a fondness for Stephen King, <laughs> so so we 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 talk about great theological truths that most people don't see when they read Stephen King, but it's so obviously there to us. And there was just a moment with a, a, a rare book that we were not rare, but not one that most general people think of uh, when they think of Stephen King. And um, it was a nice chat back and forth about how wonderful something in that book meant to both of us um, from a deeply spiritual perspective. And then having that, sharing that with a mentor of mine who I haven't seen in many, many years, uh, it was just a nice, it was a nice moment of grace. Uh, was it just a, a little key moment mm -hmm. there? So um, uh, Beekner talks about 
um, even in the boredom of it. So today was a relatively uneventful day. It was just working in my office. Uh, but when I walked out of my office, they had cut the grass and the smell of cut grass in August mm. always immediately takes me back to band camp. <laughs> um, it just like I am transported back to high school days and marching in band camp, practicing, getting ready for the season of marching. And for me, there is something, I have a very strong connection to smell and memory. Like smell and memory are very, very strong for me as they are for most people. Mm -hmm. And, um, and for me, those are just, they're little reminders that God has brought joy to me in lots of different ways and across the um, distance of my life. And it reminded me of a very, it reminds me of a very joyful and wonderful time. So um, I love the smell of grass being cut in August. <laughs> this is, this is interesting because I was wondering how I was going to answer this question because I, I really, I love what I get to do, but today was one of those hard days couple things didn't didn't quite go right and it was just a tough day and so i was i was about to i was wondering how do i say without being the debbie downer how do i say well i didn't see or taste or touch or smell any grapes <laughs> today but but then it it dawned on me when i got home i was met with love with people that love me and care about me uh unconditionally and shame on me for overlooking that but that was that was grace that I experienced today. Yeah, it's a good it's a good reminder um, that grace is available to us at, at any time, and so often our senses can be a pathway to recognizing uh, the goodness of life. Well, we um, we are still in Luke. Daniel, would you help us get started with this one? I'll be glad to. You know, often on the podcast when we're reviewing the stories of Jesus or certain passages, we just scratch our heads and wonder what in the world is going on. And then there's parables like today, when we know exactly what it means. And for many of us, that's the problem. See, in this story, Jesus pronounces a prophetic word that suggests that just beyond the horizon of time, a rich man will suffer in torment and judgment. And a poor man who has endured more pain and misery than we can imagine, well, he will enjoy paradise. In other words, Jesus points us to a reversal of fortunes that stuns our senses when we hear it. This parable Jesus tells is in a series of stories Jesus tells about rich men. A chapter earlier, we hear the tale of a father who throws a lavish feast for his prodigal son who recklessly spends his inheritance. Then there's the story of the owner of a hundred sheep who leaves and looks for one that strayed from the farm. Earlier in chapter 16, we read about the rich man who accuses his manager of squandering his property. We studied that last week. And today we have a rich man who can't even demonstrate the slightest modicum of compassion for a poor man. Here's the story. A certain rich man, Jesus tells us, lives a very good life. Jesus doesn't tell us his name, 
But some older translations of the Bible call him Dives, which is Latin for rich. So I'll just use that name for the sake of clarity. The way Jesus tells it, Dives can afford the best of everything, suits made of the finest of Egyptian linen, and every night he dines on sumptuous meats, the choicest vegetables from markets, and the finest wines. Why not? It's his money. He can do with it whatever he wishes. But if Dives had only looked out his front door, just past the massive iron gate surrounding his lavish home, he just might have found a better place to spend some of his money. See, just outside those gates was Lazarus, a man dying of starvation and disease. Covered with open sores, Jesus tells us that the only thing Lazarus has to eat is scavenged from the scraps of garbage thrown over the walls of Dives' estate. Well, interestingly enough, in Jesus' story, Lazarus and Dives both die. Poor Lazarus is carried off to the bosom of Abraham. That's Bible talk for heaven. And despite the finest funeral send-off, Rich Dives finds himself in hell. He looks up from his place in hell into heaven and sees Lazarus at Abraham's side. I'm in torment down here, Dives cries to Abraham. Have pity on me. Send Lazarus down here. Ah, he's doing better now. Send him down here with a cold bottle of Perrier to quench my thirst. It's rather hot down here. Can you believe it? Up to his neck in the flames of hell, and Dives can't even recognize Lazarus as a human being. Just someone to fetch whatever he wants. I love how Clarence Jordan's Cotton Patch Gospels translates the response. Abraham says, Lazarus ain't going to run no moyo errands, rich man. <laughs> Lazarus then says, if it's too late for me, send word to my brothers to tell them to shape up and serve the poor. Abraham replies, they can read the Bible. It's all in there. No special messages from beyond the grave. In my mind, as Jesus tells this story, I see a gate, perhaps a wall, separating Lazarus and Dives. On one side, a man lives so lavishly, while on the other side, just inches away, a man is in rags, starving. So close, yet so far. Lucky for us, I suppose, since Jesus first told this story, the gap between the rich and poor has narrowed to almost non-existence, right? Oh, no. I read today about Alice, Jim, and Rob. They're the children of Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart. Together, they have a worth of more than $200 billion. And right now, their wealth is growing by more than $100 million every single day day, while many Walmart employees rely on public assistance. So close, yet so far. What are we to do? Now, I'll be the first to admit, I, I'm not exactly sure what policy decisions lawmakers need to make, but I'll tell you what you and I ought to do. We ought to follow Jesus, and Jesus cares about the poor. You remember Jesus, don't you? 
the one who stood in Nazareth and proclaimed, the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to who? The poor. You remember Jesus, don't you? The one who looked into the faces of 5,000 hungry people and said, all of you will be fed today, not just some of you. You remember Jesus, don't you? The one who broke the law by feeding hungry people on the Sabbath. The one who drove the money changers from the temple. Yes, we need to recognize and follow Jesus. The one who demands that we see the needs of those around us and do something about it. Jesus tells us this story, friends, not to condemn us, but to compel us. To compel us to share what we have before it's too late. And here's the other thing. We are called to live in community. What I think that means is that if a bunch of people, but excuse me, a bunch of rich people read this parable, they're probably going to get squeamish. And if a bunch of poor people read this parable, they may condemn those with money in the bank. But what might happen if we read this story together? Might we open a door of understanding and realize that we are truly sisters and brothers? And as beloved family, we must remember, friends, we must remember how we treat the poor according to Jesus, just might determine eternity. That's some background on our text for today. Thanks for that, Daniel. Um, I mean, I've heard this parable so many times, but I, I really enjoyed your retelling of it. I was struck toward the end as you, as you beckoned us to read it together for the, the rich and the poor of which I am probably more on the rich side than the poor side, all things considered. But for us to read it together, for us to hear it together, um, that's a message of unity that I think is sorely needed in our time. Ways for us to hear each other again, to see each other again, to recognize each other again. Because that was a lot of the problem here, right? Not seeing, not recognizing, not knowing the other. So thanks for that good word. I, I'm going to have to ponder this reading together bit more. Yes, thank you very much, Daniel, for that. Um, and I agree with, with David. The invitation at the end is, dare I say, very Christ-like. Um, thank you. Uh, because it is, it's easier for folks like me who are just more, more of an activist at heart to say, see... <laughs> And it, it is good. And, and it reminds me of um, when we hear it together, it makes it harder to write off an easy interpretation. Yeah. Whether it's rich versus poor or in the tradition many of us grew up in, which justifies ignoring wealth and inequality. Obviously, Jesus is just talking about what hell is like. Hell is miserable, right? That's what this is for. And I've heard people say that, that you cannot read into this about economic issues. This is just telling us how awful hell is. And I'm like, no, 
No, it's not. Especially as you pointed out, in the larger context of the stories that precede it, uh, there's economic things here, and it does come down to relationships. And and it's fascinating because I think of the story so much around Christmas time, because it. I wonder. I, I don't know. There may be some Charles Dickens scholars out there, but you've mm. got to think, yeah, that Dickens yeah. was influenced by this with Scrooge, because this is exactly what's happening. He sees his rich friends who are coming back to warn him, right? And, uh, and of course, in this story, the rich can't go back and warn. Lazarus says, oh, send my brothers down to, you know, no, no, send somebody else. No, if they don't figure it out, at least, you know, Scrooge is being warned and has that transformation of relationship with the poor that he is completely blind to in life. You know what's sticking out for me, Daniel? You did a great job. What is working on me? What is kind of rattling around in my brain in addition to what David and Bert have said is how clear you were that this is something we really need to address. This is something that we really need to pay attention to. You did not mince words you were not bombastic about it either. You simply called us to remember that Jesus tells us to take care of those in need and specifically those who have material needs, financial needs. And I mean, dare I say you didn't preach hellfire and brimstone, but I really appreciated the clarity with which you talked several weeks ago. We had a conversation together about money um, and about how hard it is for our groups, for people in general. But we were kind of in the mindset of thinking about the groups that use this, how hard it can be to talk about money with one another in the space of church in small group settings, this is the same conversation. It's still about money and what money we have and what we do with it. And what do we do when we meet people who don't have it? Mm, yes. Correct me if I am wrong, but I don't think Jesus ever puts a qualifier on the poor. It's no, like it's uh, not the poor who really did a good job, but had all these terrible things happen. And there's just no way anybody could survive, you know, uh, all of those things. Right. Those are deserving poor. Jesus does not distinguish between deserving and undeserving poor. Jesus simply says there needs to be more balance. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And I think that's so important what you just said, that Jesus doesn't qualify but we do all the time all the time mm -hmm. it's we we have such disdain for the poor yeah we absolutely do when whenever there is and i i don't mean to be partisan but i will be political here whenever we talk about social programs or debt forgiveness it's how are we going to pay for that Mm -hmm. uh, when when we talk about tax cuts for those who do not even need it, 
We don't say, how are we going to pay for that? We say, well, that's just good policy. We 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 have such disdain. We we say, well, you know, we we better make sure they're putting in enough job, job applications and gosh, we better make them take a drug test because we wouldn't want any public assistance to, you know, as if we don't hand out welfare to the upper class every day of the mm-hmm. year. Every day. Yep. We we have such disdain for the poor, and Jesus will not let us do that. He just won't. I think Jesus is saying, you want to mistreat the poor in this life? Well, good luck to you in the next. Yeah. My family and I have been on a a rerun kick lately of the the early 2000s TV show, Boston Legal. Hmm. And one of my favorite uh, episodes, and there are many, um, come from the second season when when Denny Crane, who is played by William Shatner, who is an extremely wealthy, self-centered, narcissistic, extremely powerful attorney. He's walking down the street of Boston with one of his other attorneys in the firm, uh, played um, Alan Shore, uh, played by, um, I can't think of his name. James Spader. James Spader. Yeah. And they're in (laughs) their super fine suits and they're just talking and they're going like under an overpass and they almost trip over a homeless man and they just keep walking. And the homeless man says, hey, hey, and they just keep walking. And he finally picks up a rock. The homeless man throws a rock, hits Denny Crane in the back and says, look, you know, you don't have to even give me money, but just notice me. Mm -hmm. Just notice me and later on alan shore ends up representing him in a lawsuit against Eddie crane um because alan has some sense of conscience uh throughout despite his horrible behavior most of the time but anyway at some point they're standing on the 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 balcony which they do at the end of every episode the the two attorneys he says denny alan shore says when we were walking out of the subway station the other day And Randall, the name of the homeless man, when he asked us for change, did you hear him call to us? Did you even notice he was there before he hit us with a rock, hit you in the head? He said, no. Did you? And Alan said, no. He threw a rock, didn't he? He'd had enough of being ignored, neglected, and he rose up and threw a rock at some rich guy. Now, this is... 17 years ago, I guess, 37 million Americans are living in poverty, Denny. You under, you ever wonder what will happen if they all decided to rise up? That was a powerful moment in that episode. Mm-hmm. And there are more than enough times that if you dare to watch it, no, it's not it's not family friendly, uh, so be warned. But if you dare to watch it, there's enough times. Last week, we talked about villains uh, and cheaters being held up as actually doing something nice. Alan Shore actually carries a lot of virtue in him, despite all the horrible things he tends to do, played off against uh, the narcissistic Denny Crane. But that, that's a powerful scene that I, I also I mentioned Scrooge before, but I also remembered this Lazarus because the rich man who's never even notices him just mm-hmm. and he's right there all the time and i think daniel pointed us to part of the remedy 
he never noticed Lazarus. There was a wall between them. Mm -hmm. Right. And then later after they've died, there is this huge gap between them again. What if the wall had come down to begin with? Would he have noticed him? Would this rich man have noticed Lazarus? Would they might have ended up in the same place at the end of it all? Hmm. And I think this idea of reading together, I don't know how that happens. That's, that's a much bigger question and a much longer podcast. We will make it more, more difficult than it has to be. But I do think that if we sit down in a room together with the people who are different than us, be that socioeconomically, racially, because there are power gaps there, Mm -hmm. gender wise, sexual difference, sexuality differences, neuro differences, ability differences. Mm -hmm. If we all sat down in a room together and read scripture and talked about how we see it from where we sit, what might that do? So I, I'm an eternal optimist. I am. To, I know it drives some people nuts around me. But, <laughs> but I think I have to believe that, that reading it in community would uncover the good news that is here. Yes. And it's not just doom and gloom for those who have money. No. The good news is Jesus, I think, is saying it doesn't have to be like the story I'm telling you. Let right. this be the cautionary tale that you can do things differently. You can notice people. You can share what you have. You can be generous with the resources that you have. Hmm. And and you can help others and and bless others and feed others and clothe others because you know, to jump over to Matthew, Jesus says, you do it for me. Mm-hmm. So I, I have to, and you know, there, there is good news only if we will listen to it. And what a lovely image of the church. Mm. Yeah. Perhaps what Martin Luther King Jr. was envisioning as he thought about the beloved community. Well, um, just as Bert supplied me with a wonderful closing for last week, Daniel did so this week <laughs> um, by providing uh, a story that um, I would like to share. And it tells of James Forbes, who is the former pastor of Riverside Church in New York City. And he would tell of a childhood ritual. Every night when the family had gathered for their supper before they said grace, his mother, Mabel, would ask, are all the children in? If any of the eight children was not present, James said, we would have to stop and prepare a plate for the child not present and put it in the oven so that there would be enough for all, so that all of the family would be nourished. James says, I like to think of God as a sort of mama eternal who before we can satisfy our own needs, asks, are all my children in? Mm. What a wonderful image. And what a reminder to us that there are other needs than our own that need satisfying in our family. Mm. 
Thank you all for this good conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Subscribe to the Faith Element Podcast on iTunes or Google Play. Learn more about our Faith Element Bible study curriculum at faithelement.net. Faith Element is a service of Faith Lab.